We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Real Story on the Socialist Program. We go beyond the superficial to understand the social and political struggles dominating the world today. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Gerald Horn. Dr. Horn holds the Moore's Professorship of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's a prolific author, the author of so many books, including a recent volume which is especially relevant for today's show. It's called The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. He's also the author of a new book, it's coming out soon, called The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. Today's show is part of a new series on the socialist program called Creation Myths. We talk today about what is Thanksgiving. Families around the country gather together for Thanksgiving festivities, but this holiday is one of America's most important federal holidays. It's also based on a lie. Like many creation stories about America, it is based on a false history and false consciousness. It is based on a myth, not reality. Dr. Horn, welcome to The Socialist Program. Thank you for inviting me. We're talking about creation myths, and this is part of a series. Uh, we're going to talk about the founding of the United States. Uh, we're going to talk about Thanksgiving. Today, of course, is Thanksgiving. People are gathering together with their families throughout the United States. They're having Thanksgiving dinner. They have the day off. It's a federal holiday. It's been a federal holiday, Dr. Horn, for some time. We want to get into the the importance or lack thereof of Thanksgiving, but certainly from the point of view of a creation myth, uh, I certainly was taught as a young kid that, you know, the, the pilgrims landed on Plymouth Rock in Massachusetts. Of course, Malcolm X said, Plymouth Rock landed on us, but the point being that the story, the creation story, was that the pilgrims who were in search of freedom uh, from religious persecution came to the to the New World. They discovered it, and they were met by people who lived here, indigenous people, uh, native people, people we were uh, labeled and, and taught as the Indians, and the Indians taught the pilgrims how to survive. They taught them how to grow corn. And at the end of the first couple difficult years, there was a celebration and the Indians and the pilgrims came together to give thanks for the survival of the, of the settlers, the, the pilgrims. Now that's, that's the story. Uh, America's uh, Thanksgiving story has gone through numerous iterations uh, George Washington and the Continental Congress declared it as a day of celebration following the victory of the Continental Army, George Washington's army over the British at Saratoga. 
That was, I believe, in 1777. Uh, then you had Abraham Lincoln proclaiming it a national holiday in October 1863, following the defeat of the Confederate Army in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, it really becomes a federal holiday later uh, in a, a holiday that's recognized everywhere in 1939, 1941. The country, the United States, is again at war. But let's just talk about the story of the pilgrims being met by indigenous people in Massachusetts. Again, as a child, that's what, you know, in second grade, I was taught this is what this is what Thanksgiving's all about. The Indians saved the pilgrims who in turn uh, bestowed friendship upon them. Let's just talk about the real story. And when did the pilgrims and the pilgrims in their interaction with the indigenous population in Massachusetts, uh, we'll talk about what that really was like, but when did it even become the sort of centerpiece of the Thanksgiving creation story? Well, it's, it's very curious, is it not, that this creation myth begins about 400 years ago, circa 1620, 1621, in what we now refer to as Massachusetts, when you have the Anglosphere invasion of the Americas in the 1580s in what is now North Carolina, and of course that settlement was ultimately defeated, routed, disappeared. It remains somewhat unclear to this very day. But in any case, in terms of a more permanent settlement, that's 1607 in, in Virginia. And it's, it's very curious that somehow most folks feel that the Anglosphere invasion commences 13 years later. I think it's a way to escape the reality that Virginia becomes, as is notorious and well-known, a slave state. And even though Massachusetts ultimately becomes to be deeply implicated in the African slave trade, and in fact, African slavery too, not to mention indigenous slavery, uh, its reputation is not as bloodstained, for better or for worse, than that of Virginia. In any case, this story of how the indigenous or in some ways the comrades in arms of the settlers, I think that it should immediately alert those who are familiar with the true history of the United States that something is awry. Because we know that when the settlers arrived, they did not expect to be greeted understandably by with sweets and roses, as Dick Cheney said about the set of the invaders of Iraq a few hundred years later. Uh, they were on a mission <laughs> to seize the land of the indigenous, which they most assuredly did. And in some ways, Thanksgiving, of all of the odious holidays that the United States contains now, of which there are many, the farce of July or the 4th of July, which basically helps to sanctify a, a settler's revolt against abolitionism in London, or the various holidays so-called uh, marking the shedding of blood by the U.S. military on missions abroad in particular, speaking 
of Memorial Day, Veterans Day, etc., cetera, uh, or the recently transformed so-called holiday that was once known as Columbus Day, now increasingly known as Indigenous Peoples Day, Thanksgiving might be the most odious of all because in some ways it's meant really to deodorize and sanitize settler colonialism. It's intended to throw dust in the eyes of the unwary, to make the unwary feel (laughs) that the indigenous were somehow on board with what befell them as opposed to the indigenous fighting every step of the way, as evidenced by the numerous histories that detail the uh, bloody conflicts between the indigenous population and the settlers throughout the 1600s, in a sense culminating in 1676 uh, with uh, one of the most uh, bloody conflicts of all in that part of North America that is now routinely referred to as New England. And what's also interesting about this so-called Thanksgiving holiday, which should be called Thanksgiving, because that's what it amounted to, is that the foods that are presented to families, not only from the Atlantic to the Pacific, but the Atlantic through Alaska, through Hawaii, are supposedly foods that were indigenous to the Americas or North America in particular, speaking of the wild turkey in the first instance. And and so in some ways, it's intended not only to sanctify the genocide of Native Americans and the establishment of settler colonialism, but in some ways, it's seemingly naturalizing that whole process because we're then eating these foods that the indigenous were familiar with that supposedly they helped to provide uh, to those who began to cut their throats. And so it, it seems to me that once progressive forces will more influence in North America, uh, we're going to have to have a an agonizing reappraisal of this particular holiday in particular. Dr. Gerald Horn is our guest. You're listening to The Socialist Program. This is our special segment that we do once a week called The Real Story. We do deep dives on the big political, social, theoretical, historical, economic issues facing the country and the world. We're talking about Thanksgiving. We're talking about creation myths. And of course, Creation stories are important to big institutional power, Dr. Horn. I I mean, Christianity has its creation stories. Of course, for the Old Testament, it's it's Adam and Eve. For the New Testament, it's, it's the crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection. These stories of birth and rebirth, birth, uh, giving origin to something. And of course, whether it's national entities, whether it's a religious institution, uh, they're very important in terms of how consciousness is shaped, both for uh, for the adherence of the, the institution. And if you're a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim, if you're an American and you're brought up on this other unofficial religion called Americanism, where sometimes we can't quite understand, people start chanting USA, USA, USA. You know, we saw that uh, just recently in uh, in the last two weeks here in Washington, D.C., uh, when uh, Proud Boys were setting upon 
uh, anti-racist protesters and the police stood by and then crowds chanted USA, USA, USA. Anyway, creation stories are, are very important. And again, I know Dr. Horn as a child, and I think this isn't abnormal. I was taught that Thanksgiving was the sort of what made America wonderful, that it was an encounter between Europeans seeking religious freedom and indigenous people, and they worked together and they survived together and they gave thanks. And so we, uh, those of us who are living in the United States 2020, or when I was growing up, were taught to celebrate really the survival of the pilgrims, the survival of the Europeans. Uh, you mentioned the War of 1676 and 1677. Uh, according to the Massachusetts records of those two years, a day was set apart for public Thanksgiving because, among other things, quote, there now scarce remains a name or family of them, meaning the indigenous people, but are, they are either slain, captivated, or fled. That's the official record of Massachusetts about why they were giving public thanks. In their victory, the settlers, the pilgrims, launched what can only be considered a genocidal attack uh, against remaining uh, Native people in that area. The Pequot people numbered, numbered about 8,000 uh, when the pilgrims arrived. Within about 10 years, their, their numbers were down by almost 85%, largely either because of battles or from disease. The Massachusetts government offered 20 shillings bounty for every Indian scalp and 40 shillings for every prisoner who could be sold into slavery. This was after the 1876-67 war. Soldiers were allowed to enslave any Indian woman or child under 14 that they could capture. The, quote, praying Indians, close quote, who converted to Christianity and fought on the side of the Europeans, were then accused of shooting into treetops during battles with other indigenous people. They were then enslaved or killed. Now, that's the part of Thanksgiving. That's what they, the pilgrims, the European settlers, were giving thanks for in 1676 and 1677. Now, the American school child doesn't know any of that, none of that. Well, if school children in the United States were made aware of the true history, they might be more susceptible to protesting and rebelling. Uh, they might be more susceptible to trying to transform uh, this horrific system we now refer to as capitalism. But what's interesting about this Thanksgiving holiday, so-called, is that in some ways it does capture the essence uh, of the United States without any sense of irony. What, what I mean is, is that Thanksgiving oftentimes is seen as a day of excess, of a day of gorging oneself until one virtually collapses. And in some ways, that is an apt and appropriate symbol for U.S. imperialism, which has gorged itself not only on the natural resources of various continents, but also gorged itself with regard to the free labor of people of Africa in particular. 
although, as you correctly mentioned, the indigenous population also were ensnared by slavery, thanks to the settlers, uh, speaking realistically, if not metaphorically, uh, because of the settlers' invasion in the 17th century, you can now find indigenous DNA all over the world because they were sold not only into the to slavery in the Caribbean, that is to say that the London settlers would sell the indigenous population in the 17th century into slavery in the colony they had established in Jamaica in 1655 or in Barbados in the 1620s. And likewise, they would sell the indigenous into the thriving and flourishing slave markets of North Africa and Algiers during that same period, or to the thriving slave markets of what is now Turkey, for example, during that same period. And so it was, it was a kind of ethnic cleansing. Uh, it was a kind of purging of the land and eliminating the indigenous population so that the settlers could then move in and stake their claim. And with regard to this notion of religious freedom, uh, it's curious, is it not, that supposedly, allegedly, the settlers were crossing the Atlantic, fleeing religious persecution. But then, once they arrived there, they saw systematically to squash and extirpate the religious beliefs of the indigenous population, dismiss them, lampoon them, defame them. And in fact, a supposed rationale for their invasion was that they were supposedly not only bringing the alleged benefits of Christianity to those they derided as heathens. And, and by the way, for a while, there was a similar construct that was imposed upon the enslaved African population as well. <clears throat> but it's also striking to note that these uh, this religious freedom, which supposedly is then embodied in the First Amendment of, of the U.S. Constitution after the settlers were voted against the crown post-1776, it doesn't necessarily apply to any religion outside of the Protestant faith, even Catholics, as you know. There was a long history of anti-Catholic prejudice and bias in the results in the United States of America. And in fact, in the 17th century, although Early on, the settlers decided that the better part of wisdom was to reconcile with those they had been warring with on the shores of Europe, the Protestants versus Catholics and Christians versus Jews, because this would create a broader base for settler colonialism, a broader base from which to recruit soldiers if nothing, and settlers, if nothing else. And it was that kind of pragmatism that then came to be in some ways referred to as the reigning philosophy of, of capitalism to a certain degree, this, this pragmatism. Uh, that is to say, it's pragmatic to make people work for free because you can produce more wealth. It's pragmatic to take land from the indigenous because then the uh, indigenous 
or then uh, deprived. And you also mentioned quite appropriately how the settlers had an eerie knack for turning one group of indigenous against another group of indigenous. And that is one of the major themes of the, quote, success, unquote, of settler colonialism in the United States of America. I mean, for example, uh, to fast forward to Texas, where I'm now sitting, uh, which, as you know, seceded from Mexico in 1836 after Mexico had moved to uh, abolition of slavery under a president of African descent, Vicente Guerrero, one of the reasons why the invading settlers in Texas were able to prevail is that periodically they would recruit one group of indigenous, such as the Lapan Apaches, Apaches to fight other groups of indigenous, such as the Comanches and, and, and the Kickapoo in, in the first instance. And then after they had accomplished this dirty work, then they'd be liquidated in, in turn. It's, 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 it's really a, a despicable story. And obviously there needs to be a reckoning at some point and some sort of truth and reconciliation commission to produce a truer, more accurate story so that children going forward in the 21st century will not be subjected to such poisonous propaganda that obviously gets them off on the wrong, wrong foot. Dr. Gerald Horn is our guest. This is The Socialist Program, and this is our segment called The Real Story. We're focusing on creation myths, creation stories, the stories that America tells itself about how the United States was founded as the home of freedom, the home of democracy, and that it continues to occupy this special, exceptional place. Dr. Horn, the colonial period begins, we're talking about what the impact was on indigenous people. We're talking, of course, what it had, what its impact was on African people who were kidnapped by the millions and brought to the, quote, new world uh, to function as the unpaid labor for an emerging American capitalism. But I want to talk a little bit about the pre-colonial period, because again, where we started, this discovery doctrine, the the, the notion that there was nothing here until Christopher Columbus set sail and landed. And, you know, this is a, a predominant part of the creation story. I'm, I'm, you're in Texas. I'm in Washington, D.C., or the District of Columbia, Columbia, Columbus, Columbia University, Columbus Day. I mean, uh, even though Christopher Columbus never set, set foot on what is now the United States, this whole concept of discovery— but before the discovery, there was uh, not only a people, but tens of millions, perhaps a hundred million people, I, uh, who were made up these advanced civilizations. And and there's also a caricaturing of what indigenous life was like prior to the quote discovery. There was there there's a notion that it all of life revolved around basically a, a, a Neolithic image of, of, a, of a hunter using, you know, sort of anarch, uh, anachronistic uh, weapons to hunt game, that it was simply a hunting and gathering society. But when you go back thousands of years uh, with the Aztecs, the Mayans, the, 
the indigenous populations that were largely based on towns and urban areas, advanced transportation networks, uh, very advanced uh, systems of mathematics and astronomy and law. You see that what came before the discovery was an advanced civilization. Now, I, I have a book with me, which I'm sure you're aware of and probably know the author well, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. It's an important book. It's called An Indigenous People's History of the United States. I want to read a little bit uh, to our audience and to you, Dr. Horn, and then get your comments. This is chapter one. It's called Follow the Corn. Humanoids existed on Earth for around four million years as hunters and gatherers living in small communal groups that through their movements found and populated every continent. Some 200,000 years ago, human societies having originated in sub-Saharan Africa began migrating in all directions and their descendants eventually populated the globe. Around 12,000 years ago, some of these people began staying put and developed agriculture, mainly women who domesticated wild plants and began cultivating others. As a birthplace of agriculture and the towns and cities that followed, America is ancient, not a new world. Domestication of plants took place around the globe in seven locales during approximately the same period, around 8500 BC. Three of the seven were in the Americas, all based on corn, the Valley of Mexico in Central America, the South Central Andes in South America, and in Eastern North America. The other early agricultural centers were the Tigris-Euphrates, that's now Iraq, and the Nile River systems, Sub-Saharan Africa, the Yellow River of Northern China, and the Yangtze of Southern China. During this time, many of the same societies began domesticating animals. Only in the American continent was the parallel domestication of animals eschewed in favor of a game management, a kind of animal husbandry, different from that which developed in Africa and Asia. In these seven areas, agriculture-based, quote, civilized, close quote, societies developed in symbiosis with hunting, fishing, and gathering peoples on their peripheries, gradually enveloping many of the latter into the realm of their civilizations except for those in regions inhospitable to agriculture. So what the author, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, is telling us is that for many thousands of years, indigenous populations and, and indigenous peoples in these three locales in the Americas developed very advanced civilizations. Now, again, let's think about the discovery doctrine the idea that Thanksgiving was the pilgrims finally came, the Europeans finally came and discovered the new world. It's not a new world. Anyway, let's just talk about how this framing, not only for uh, the Americas, but also for Africa and also for China, this Eurocentric framing of the evolution of our species, the, humans, the human species, uh, was elsewhere. It wasn't in Europe. And yet, again, these are one of these creation myths where uh, we're told, and people all over the world are told, Africa's backwards, Latin America backwards, 
in, indigenous peoples backward. Asia was backward. But the Europeans were this advanced civilization bringing new thoughts, new ideas, new concepts of what it meant to be human. They were the advanced people. Let's just talk about some of that history. Well, obviously, there's going to have to be a lot of unlearning done in the United States of America and in North America uh, going forward. Uh, for example, there's going to have to be some sort of recognition that as of about 1800, despite the so-called rise of Europe and the success of the so-called revolution in North America led by George Washington, as of 1800, China was still the major economic power and on planet Earth. And it, it, it took uh, the so-called century of humiliation, uh, which is the term that the Chinese use from the 1840s until the Chinese Revolution of 1949, uh, for that particular Chinese ascendancy uh, to to be reversed. And of course, now in 2020, uh, we see that we've had a return of history, uh, to coin a phrase, with China on the march once again. But certainly this, this kind of despicable uh, critique of the indigenous population uh, does not stand the test of reality. Uh, for example, uh, I would urge and encourage your listeners to look into the indigenous people of the sprawling region across what we now call the Mississippi River from St. Louis. Uh, St. Louis, of course, is referred to as the Mound City, uh, one of the major urban areas uh, on planet Earth about a millennium ago was just across that river uh, with the mounds still in some ways being present, although some have been wrecked. And those indigenous people, including the Cahokia, in some ways were more advanced than those who eventually invaded uh, their neck of the woods a few hundred years later. Uh, the same holds true for Africa. Uh, I'm sure that some of your listeners are familiar with the story of Mansa Musa, uh, who was an African leader ruling in what is now uh, the country we call Mali, uh, which contains one of the first universities on planet Earth and the now routinely derided Timbuktu, uh, whose wealth particularly helped to attract the ravenous attention of Western European invaders to the north, who initially, once they began their descent into Africa were seeking raw materials, particularly gold, which is a commodity that is still present in Africa, and then subsequently began the search for human bodies. But it's also important to note that with regard to these United States of America, uh, which also includes uh, the once thriving kingdom of Hawaii, uh, which, as you know, was overthrown by U.S. imperialism after it had gorged itself on overthrowing indigenous polities in North America and then crossed the Pacific to overthrow the kingdom of Hawaii in the 1890s, in part because the kingdom of Hawaii was seeking to form 
a Pacific Confederation of Polynesians and Melanesians. Melanesians, of course, are the people who resemble Africans, people such as myself, that is to say, with the, uh, as they say, tightly knit curly hair and the darker skin, in part because after the U.S. Civil War in 1865, uh, many of the slavers in North America wanted to continue that horrific process and were crossing the Pacific to enslave Melanesians and Polynesians, not least in Queensland, Australia, and in Fiji, and the Kingdom of, of Hawaii was trying to uh, interpose itself against that, and in the process tried to broker an agreement with the rising Japan, even to this day, a plurality of the population in Hawaii is of Japanese ancestry. But the Kingdom of Hawaii was a very sophisticated kingdom. In some ways, it had electricity and telephones before a good deal of the mainland. Uh, but that did not save it from being overthrown in the 1890s, turned into a U.S. colony, uh, what was initially an apartheid colony where the European settlers lorded it over the uh, brown-skinned masses and the uh, growing Asian population as well, before being incorporated into the United States of America, finally, in, in 1959. And so... Just as in the Kingdom of Hawaii and in Cahokia, across from the, the river from St. Louis, you had fierce resistance every step of the way to these invaders. But what's striking is that the invaders had honed their warfighting techniques, in particular the, the ability to forge weaponry by fighting each other, particularly the English versus the Irish, and then the British versus the French. And because of the compact nature and the contiguity of Western Europe, there were many opportunities for battling and fighting, which was a crucible for developing weapons that then could be turned upon what oftentimes were more sophisticated societies across the Atlantic and eventually across the Pacific, because as I say in my book on the 16th century, which you so kindly cited, in some ways in the 1500s, the conditions in the England were more primitive than conditions in other parts of the world. But then that began to change with the invasions, with the accumulation of wealth, with mass enslavement which once again was resisted every step of the way uh, by these societies, by the Aztecs uh, due south from where I'm sitting in Mexico, originally New Spain, according to the settlers, uh, by the Incas uh, further south in today's Peru. But alas, uh, they were not able to resist to the extent and degree they desired and that allowed for a victory by the invaders with the results of that victory only beginning to be pushed back vigorously uh, in the 20th century and now in the 21st century. Dr. Gerald Horn is our guest. Dr. Horn, um, the, the United Nations in 1948 uh, passed a resolution on genocide. It's the UN Convention on the Prevention and Punishment for the Crime of Genocide. This is, of course, 
following the Nuremberg trials, the Nazi Holocaust, uh, you know, genocide became part of the the vernacular of America of of, of world politics, and uh, the Convention on Genocide describes a genocide as committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national ethnic ethnical racial or religious group now in the case of uh, the settler regime in south africa the the european settlers who settled south africa occupied south africa uh, they needed the labor of african people and they needed the labor of African people to be subjugated labor. And so the system of capitalist apartheid fascism ruled over the African majority for a very, very long time. In the case of American settler colonialism, this brand, this version of capitalism, the goal was not to put the indigenous population to work, it was to take their land. And as a consequence, the history, the real history, the history that again is, you know, whitewashed by Thanksgiving, is a history of real genocide. And you have different periods during which this genocide was rolled out on the indigenous population. And as you said, people fought tooth and nail every step of the way. Uh, but you have the one wave, the Jacksonian era of uh, forced removal. Andrew Jackson, of course, the elected president in 1828, Donald Trump's hero. Then there's the, uh, the next wave of uh, genocide. That's the California gold rush, uh, 1848. You had, again, that was shortly after the seizure of Texas and the northern part of Mexico that then became part of the United States. Again, uh, expanding slavery, but that was a period of of genocide of against indigenous peoples in the West in California. There was the post Civil War Indian Wars. That's what it was called. These were the the wars in the plains. That's uh, General Sherman, the hero of the of the Union Army, certainly in the destruction of the of the Confederate Army. Uh, he and the other Northern generals turned their attention to the to a, a genocidal campaign against indigenous populations. And then you go forward 100 years uh, to the 1950s and what, what's called the termination period uh, by indigenous scholars, whereby the children of indigenous people, and I know my now deceased friend Dennis Banks was one of them, taken from their homes and put into these schools so that they could, quote, take the Indian out of the children, meaning deprive them of their language, their culture, their families, their history, uh, and, and have this kind of forced assimilation. Uh, when, we, when we think about the UN Convention on the Prevention and Punishment for the Crime of Genocide, all of the things that I just mentioned, not only killing people, but destroying their identity, imposing measures intended to prevent births. Uh, and of course, native women were subjugated to all kinds of forced sterilization. In, in every sense, the, the, the treatment by the settler regime and by America to the indigenous people uh, has been genocidal. 
I mean, on every every definition of the term. And again, you would think that uh, a society that says it opposes genocide, eventually the U.S. Senate did, uh, it took a while, but, you know, approved the genocide treaty. Uh, we have Thanksgiving and none of that exists except maybe a tipping of the hat a little bit since, you know, rank and file grassroots and mainly led by indigenous people have demanded uh, a, a counter narrative about what Thanksgiving meant. But Thanksgiving should be conflated, as you said earlier, perhaps it's the most odious of the creation myth holidays because it gives thanks and says uh, it has a divine mandate to do that which the settlers did. And what the settlers did do was genocide. Well, it's appropriate that you began your litany with a reference to the post-World War II, post-1945 period and the Genocide Convention because historians have now begun to recognize that the Nazi regime studied quite closely, carefully, and intently of what happened in North America. That is to say, the Nazi officialdom oftentimes suggested that there was not sufficient outcry in North America to prevent the liquidation of the indigenous, the mass enslavement of the Africans, and so there should not be sufficient outcry in Central and Eastern Europe in the 1930s and the early 1940s if Berlin sought to do the same thing. Uh, fortunately, uh, the Nazis miscalculated, in part because they went a step too far uh, when they, of course, encountered the iron will uh, of the then Soviet Union, but also uh, when the United States itself was in the crosshairs, which, which forced a, a response uh, accordingly. Yet, despite the Genocide Convention, it's interesting that if you look at the current issue of the American Historical Review, which is the leading journal for U.S. historians of whatever field or stripe, there is a lengthy review of a new book on the treatment of war criminals in Germany post-World War II, and it comes to a conclusion that you will not find surprising, and I trust many of your listeners will not be find surprising, which is that the war criminals were treated quite harshly in the now departed German Democratic Republic, East Germany, Socialist Germany, but were treated uh, in a namby-pamby fashion in what used to be called West Germany, but is now the Federal Republic of Germany, which then, to the applause of many on this side of the Atlantic, swallowed, uh, swallowed East Germany uh, post-1989. And that, too, is a lesson that I'm afraid to say we're going to have to relearn, because you still have exercising influence in Berlin, Many who have blood on their hands because of the depredations inflicted in Central and Eastern Europe in the 1930s and the 1940s. And then when we speak of genocide in North America, uh, we cannot omit reference to the We Charge Genocide petition uh, engineered by Paul Robeson, the late great activist and singer and actor 
uh, filed with the United Nations 1950-1951 charging genocide against uh, black Americans, uh, which brought uh, all hell down on Mr. Robeson's head, not to mention uh, his comrade, uh, William Patterson, who was jailed as a result. And it's interesting as well to note that there is a linkage between and amongst these various genocides, because even though Germany does not have a vast record in terms of the colonizing of Africa, they do have a despicable record. Um, You need only look at what befell South Africa's northern neighbors, speaking of Namibia, formerly German Southwest Africa, which in the period between 1904 and 1908 was subjected to a horrific genocide by uh, German invaders, particularly the the Nama and Herero people, with many of the actors, the German actors, uh, basically honing their bloody skills in Southwest Africa before taking those bloody skills back to Central and Eastern Europe by the 1930s. These are some of the same people who were active in Africa, who then became active in Europe. And so obviously, if there had been an outcry in Africa, it might have stayed their hand with regard to what befell Central and Eastern Europe. But it does not stop there. There was also formerly uh, German East Africa, speaking of today's uh, Tanzania, once Tanganyika, uh, where you had a a similar uh, attempts at genocide inflicted upon African people. The Indiana University historian Michelle Moyd, M-O-Y-D, has written voluminously on this question. And once again, what's interesting about European colonialism in Africa is how often and how frequently these European powers were assisted by U.S. nationals, speaking of Euro-Americans. For example, on a book that I wrote some years ago on Kenya, which, as you know, was colonized by London about 120, 130 years ago, What's striking about that colonial project of London was how so many of the key lieutenants were actually Euro-Americans. And I think it's because by broadening the base of settler colonialism, by virtually inventing this category of whiteness, the United States basically had a sufficient number of nationals who could then be deployed abroad to establish and help to buttress and bolster racist regimes, uh, be they in East Africa, Britain, or be they in South Africa itself, where, as you know, uh, there were a considerable number of Euro-Americans from the very beginning, and certainly in the 20th century, uh, when you had Euro-Americans at the controls with regard to a number of key enterprises in apartheid South Africa. So this is the kind of history we need to be studying in imbibing on this Thanksgiving holiday. But I dare say that in order for that welcome result to occur, it will require much more militant struggle, much more marching, much more protesting, and I'm afraid to say much more sacrifice as well. Dr. Gerald Horn is our guest. This is the real story. This is a segment we do on the socialist program. We're talking about creation myths. Dr. Horn, because we're a socialist program, I want to read a quote to you from one of our favorite socialists. That would be Karl Marx. Uh, And he wrote in Capital, which was published in 
1867, uh, these words. This is the chapter called The Genesis of the Industrial Capitalist. He wrote, the discovery of gold and silver in America, the extirpation, enslavement, and entombment in minds of the aboriginal population, the beginning of the conquest and looting of the East Indies, the turning of Africa into a warren for the commercial hunting of black skins, signaled the rosy dawn of the era of capitalist production. These idyllic proceedings are the chief moments of prior accumulation, or what might be called primary accumulation. And, you know, Marx died in, in 1883, one year later, and he wrote this book, Capital, this famous, important text for socialists and for the movements of socialism in 1867. The year after he died, there was the, the Conference of Berlin in 1884, where the European countries and the United States was there as, a, as an observer. Uh, they took the map of Africa and they decided who would get what. There was the attempt to have a peaceful, not a, like the later World War I, World War II, military inter-imperialist war for the redivision of the world and its colonies, but a peaceful division of Africa, peaceful meaning peaceful in that they would not go to war with each other, but not peaceful at all for Africans. And so you had the, the conference of the European capitalists and their governments in 1884. The conference lasted 107 days and they took the map. And with the exception of, I believe, Ethiopia, and maybe you can make the, the argument of Liberia in a sort of kind of way, uh, within 18 years, all of Africa was under the domination of European colonial powers and African self-governance, with the exception of Ethiopia, vanished. So I want to talk as we start to wind down here about the phenomena of settler colonialism and genocide and Karl Marx's reference to the to the rosy dawn of capitalism to sort of try to understand that this story of genocide and of the liquidation of whole peoples and cultures and societies isn't simply uh, based on the sadistic, vicious, and, and, and from the point of view of consciousness, racist attitudes of uh, some parts of the world, in particular those uh, coming from European countries, but it's also rooted in this social system. And, and I think that's also important as we talk about Thanksgiving, because we're told and our children are told all the time that there's a conflation between the free market, as it's called, or capitalism and democracy. Socialism is associated with totalitarianism, capitalism associated with freedom and democracy, another creation story, a creation myth. And yet when you think about uh, the, the sort of organic interconnectedness between genocide and the formation of this particular economic order, uh, it becomes unmistakably clear, it certainly was from Marx's point of view, that you can't think about capitalism other than thinking of it as a system of colonialism, the negation of democracy, the negation of people's rights, and bottom line, a system premised on, on the genocide of many for the profits of few. And also a system of irrationality, I might add. What I mean by that is there was an article in the New York Times a few days ago by their uh, 
crack financial journalist Neil Irwin, where he brought forward the alleged revelation that a society like the United States actually requires a government. No way. You, you need a government? Because, of course, he was reacting not only to the toxic propaganda put forward by the allegedly sainted Ronald Wilson Reagan during his misrule and maladministration from 1980 to 1988, where he was known to say that the scariest words that you can ever hear is, I'm from the government, I'm here to help. Government is the problem, a line that then was adopted and adapted by one of the successor regimes, speaking of Bill Clinton in the 1990s in particular. And now, as many of us are homebound and locked down as a result of a pandemic that was mishandled by government, whereas in parts of the world where that sort of nonsense is not taken seriously, in China not least, but also in other capitalist countries like Japan and South Korea, even New Zealand, uh, they're not subject, to put it mildly, to the same kind of lockdown that we are now subjected to here in North America, which then points to the fact that the United States, which was at the tip of the spear with regard to Cold War propaganda against socialism, socialism was thought to embody the idea of a strong government. The United States was the alleged antithesis to socialism, so therefore the United States was then hostile to government. It was almost as if you said that socialism was in favor of expert dental care. The United States would endorse tooth decay. It was re reduced to that that's kind of level of absurdity. And also, it's interesting to note that when you refer to the Conference of Berlin in 1884, in some ways, the Conference on Berlin was a, a companion to what I referred to a few moments ago, when those who had been warring in the British Isles, English, Irish, Scots, basically unite under this new identity uh, that is whiteness. And in some ways, the Conference of Berlin also marks the beginning of a new identity uh, that's referred to as the, quote, West, unquote, uh, which is an identity that's disintegrating in light of Mr. Trump's frequent attacks on West Germany, excuse me, on Germany, on Angela Merkel in particular, which I trust has little to do with the fact that he owes the Deutsche Bank of Germany hundreds of millions of dollars. And that sort of faux unity under this new identity, it did facilitate, as you suggested, the carving up of the African continent like it was a Thanksgiving turkey and the doling out of generous portions, not only to Britain and France in the first instance, but also, as noted, to uh, Berlin as well. But fortunately, uh, that kind of piracy, that kind of gangsterism, I would like to think is coming to a screeching halt in the 21st century, not least because of the militant struggles of previous generations that we pledge and vow to carry on during this 21st century. I couldn't agree with you more. I think that's the the struggle. That's what uh, what we're trying to do, even with our program. We're not simply trying to bring people interesting stories. We want people to become actors. 
And if millions of people become actors, as we believe they already have during the past months and and will in increasing numbers, uh, people can make change. And so even as we assess and analyze a, a history that is where genocide is pervasive, uh, we can't deny it. There's no reason to, to deny it. To, to call America settler colonialism isn't an accusation. It's simply a reality. Uh, and at the same time, we have the prospects that this particular social and economic order, which is racked with crisis and clearly unable uh, to meet the needs of the day, uh, failing on COVID-19, failing on the environment, uh, leading the world to the abyss of a third world war, potentially. Uh, all of these reasons call out for change, and people are the only ones who can make change. I, I want to ask you a final question when we as we wrap up this uh, this talk about creation myths, and that is about your latest book, Dr. Horn. Uh, you are a professor of history uh, at the University of Houston. You're a prolific author. Uh, I mentioned earlier your one of your recent books, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century, uh, a must read for people who want to understand uh, the, the origin of the United States, the real story, so to speak. But now you have uh, another book, The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. This follows up a book you did recently about uh, Washington, D.C. And, and, the, and the birth and evolution of jazz. So uh, different topics. Why boxing? Well, boxing allows one to explore important subjects that oftentimes get short shrift. Boxing is a sport that has been dominated by organized crime uh, since its professionalization and acceleration in the 20th century. And an ex exploration of boxing allows one to explore that phenomenon, particularly the inter-ethnic conflicts between and amongst Jewish gangsters and Italian-American gangsters, and then the rise of black gangsters uh, as Jim Crow begins to retreat in the 1950s and the 1960s and how they're able to establish a foothold. And then looking at boxing also allows one to look at masculinity. Toxic masculinity has become a, a kind of buzzword in 21st century United States of America. And Exploring boxing allows one to do a, uh, an entire exploration of masculinity, although I should also say that this book also deals with women boxers as well, uh, and as more than a footnote. And then boxing allows one to deal with a kind of ethnic and racial succession. That is to say, earlier in the 20th century is the heyday of Jewish American boxers. And what's interesting about the Jewish American boxers is that when you look at their oral histories, they oftentimes say that I was forced to fight because I was living cheek by jowl with Irish Americans and Italian Americans. And they were always harassing us, me. And I had to learn how to use my fists. And so you had the rise of uh, many of these Jewish American boxers. But then after World War II, when there is an agonizing retreat from various forms of bigotry in the United States, we oftentimes refer solely to anti-Black bigotry, but there's a retreat of anti-Semitism as well. Uh, you see a decline of Jewish American boxers and a rise 
in turn, of Black American boxers during that same period who had honed their skills during the days of slavery going forward. Uh, I talk about the Battle Royal. Uh, Bo Jack, who was a name boxing fans might recognize, a, a top lightweight of the 1940s, he honed his skills in Battle Royals and for the delight and entertainment of the elite in Augusta, Georgia, where, of course, the famed Masters Golf Tournament is held, during the times of slavery and thereafter, they would put these black men in a ring, in a boxing ring, maybe six, seven, eight, and then blindfold them and then tell them to go at each other. And whoever emerged triumphant would then get a prize. That's how Bo Jack honed his skills as a fighter through the Battle Royal. That's how a number of Black American boxers honed their skills. And of course, being in the United States and being a, a Black American means you have to fight, just like these Jewish American boxers that I was referring to. And then, of course, you then see the rise of boxers of Mexican origin who go through a, same, a similar sort of fighting process in the Southwest and the West in particular, and Native American boxers as well. Uh, such as Danny Little Red Lopez, one of the champion featherweights of, of a few decades ago. So I'm sorry for going on at such length, but this topic is fresh on my mind. Yeah, and I'm very interested in it. I had the great privilege of uh, encouraging and succeeding in my encouragement to have Muhammad Ali go with me to, to Iraq uh, during right before the first Gulf War. And so we got to, to meet each other. And of course, he was a childhood idol for boxing and then later for boxing and politics. And then I ended up working on a movie with him and I spent two years traveling around the world with him. So uh, I got to talk to him a lot and uh, talk about his own experiences and such a unique figure, of course. And, and clearly uh, his stance and the stance of uh, a professional boxer who is at the height of his career or later professional athletes who were inspired by him. Uh, it not only tells a story in a, in a particular way, it also becomes um, sort of a center for political activism. So all of these issues are, are extremely important. I want to encourage our audience again to uh, buy this new book, The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing by our guest, Dr. Gerald Horn. So the other book that Dr. Horn uh, recently wrote, which I want to encourage our audience to get, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.